Welcome back. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theatre. I'm Gabrielle. I'm Nick, and we're thieves. So, this is going to be our final episode. <laughs> we'll come back periodically with some updates, uh, so we hope that uh, you'll stay looped in, but this is the final weekly one and sort of the end of our story. Uh, today we're going to tell you about the arrests that were made in Mr. Lee's murder and what we know about all of it. Um, we'll talk about our final months on the Hill leading up to the day that it was finally raised. Unbelievably, <laughs> it stayed up for over a year after Mr. Lee's murder uh, with Spencer there and everything, right? And then we'll also tell you what happened to the residents on the Hill, as far as we know, and, um, and, uh, and to some of the non-residents that were peripherally uh, involved and kind of central to documenting the story, though. Yeah, and at the end of the episode, we will f- reflect on how creating this podcast has intertwined our past and present lives. Yes, and all of the synchronicities, right? Yeah. Because the there is a certain full circleness to it. Right, all. right. Yeah. At the personal metaphysical level, the never-ending mystery of it all. Exactly. But first, uh, about the arrests that were made in ADA Greenbaum's investigation of the arson murder of Mr. Lee. Um, according to news reports at the time, there were two arrests. Uh, one was for a drug dealer named Nelson Diaz, the person who allegedly set the fire. Mm-hmm. And the second arrest was for Gerald Fawcett, the person who allegedly ordered the fire. Yeah, the drug lord, right? Um, right. But, all right, so we did some research on this recently and found no mention of Nelson Diaz at all, the guy who said it. No record of his arrest ever having gone to trial. We conjecture that he was given immunity for testifying against Gerald Fawcett the drug lord. Right. And last a- episode, I talked about how ADA Greenbond had vigorously dismissed my allegations about corrupt police being involved with the drug traffic that was going on at the Hill. Not, not just allegations. You witnessed yeah, it. Yeah, I know. He, he called me a liar. Yeah. And he, he, he was treating me like I was a suspect or criminal in this all when I, when I told him about the payoffs and uh, the ones I had witnessed, right? Yeah. And at the same time, Spencer, you know, the drug lord, he was trying to prove to me that the fire was not drug-related at all. For whatever reason, each of them in their heads, I was either on one team or the other for them, right? And uh, each were simultaneously and alternately suddenly intimidating me or soliciting information from me. Information... You didn't have. No, I had no more information than they already knew. Yeah. And I imagine that each of them was in league with one or two or more corrupt cops. Yeah. Uh, Probably the same ones. It was my conjecture now that it was these corrupt cops that got Greenbaum the conviction he needed for his career or for whatever, right? And, And also kept whatever arrangement they had worked out with Spencer. With Spencer. Yeah. Un- because they unexposed. clearly had an arrangement. Somebody know? did. Somebody Cops did, did. Right. exactly. Which is why Spencer was so dying to get that footage of you, <laughs> you know, filming the cop on the take. Right, right? exactly, right. But, all right, so, um, so Joel William 
Bill Greenbaum. That's how uh, his name appears in, in, the, in his obituary. He just died last year, um, and incredibly, there's a paragraph in his obituary that seems to validate all these suspicions that we have about his kind of willful blindness towards police corruption back then. So let me read from that obituary, because it's, it's crazy. Remember, this is a private obituary. This is not from like some newspaper or some official thing that was written, right? Quote, although derogatorily given the name Blue on the Bench by a certain defense attorney who had a dislike of him and noted his friendship with a number of NYPD officers, Bill took it in stride. Always valued these friendships, and it would even be later noted by District Attorney Morgenthau, <laughs> this is the obituary, that it, quote, couldn't be completely accurate, unquote, since at the time of his retirement in 2005, he was only active assistant district attorney who had prosecuted both a cop killer and a corrupt police officer, unquote. <laughs> right. This is in the obituary. Right. And uh, note that it said it couldn't be completely accurate. <laughs> By Morgan Partially, Thau. <laughs> right. Partially the, accurate, maybe. The DA but right, for right. years here in New yeah, York. Yeah, so this was in his obituary. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable that someone thought that his obituary was the appropriate place to address you know, yeah, 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 yeah. allegations like to this. To prosecute right? this, so to speak. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, so anyway, blue on the bench, green bomb. Uh, true brew, friend of the NYPD, mm -hmm. convicted a drug dealer. Yeah. And was it Spencer's rival drug dealer? I, I, in my mind, if it was corrupt cops working with Spencer, then it seems likely. And it seems just as likely that he gave immunity to the actual arsonist who did it, right? Yeah. In order, I mean... Let they me, need convictions. Right. And, uh, let, let and me, they don't even care what for. What specific right. thing? Well, that right? conviction, let's, yeah. let's read from that because there's an appeal of that conviction that came up in 95, a couple years after all, all this happened. Yeah, June of 95, this right. is from. And that's People versus V. Fawcett, which is the, the one who allegedly ordered it. Right. Um, so I'll read from it. Just after defendant's case on murder and arson charges had been sent to a trial part, the prosecutor, that'd be Greenbaum. Right indicated at bench conference that his case was weak in light of the background of his core witnesses who had extensive criminal records, were substance abusers, and had made deals with prosecution in exchange for their testimony, which would probably have been Diaz, yeah, the yeah. guy who set the fire, right? Yeah. Um, when the trial justice asked the prosecutor why he did not simply dismiss the case, the prosecutor responded that he could not do so unilaterally. The trial justice then suggested, quote, if it is a case that is going nowhere, why don't we save ourselves the time and trouble and have him waive a jury and go that way? Waive a jury trial. Why don't we have him, him waive <laughs> a jury trial? Right? So counsel then obtained defendants, so I guess the defendants' counsel obtained uh, Fawcett's uh, Spencer rival drug dealer, right? his agreement to waive his jury. 
Right. But without inquiring whether any promise had been made to the defendants re regarding the outcome of the case. This is quote unquote. The, right. You, you're still unquote. quoting. Right. You right. Know, without inquiring as to whether any promise had been made to the defendant regarding the outcome of the case. And then the trial justice subsequently found defendant guilty of murder in the second degree. Right. In other words, Fawcett thought he was going to get off By if he waived his jury trial. So he waived it, but he didn't get off. He was railroaded. Well, you know? well, he's also a drug he, dealer. Yes, he is a drug dealer. So that's what. Uh, that's so. But many, it has nothing to do with Mr. Lee's case. No, it doesn't. No, the whole arrest and trial was uh, of this drug dealer was a sham. I mean, orchestrated by, in my mind, corrupt cops through a compliant prosecutor. Blue on the bench prosecutor. Right. And, of course, Spencer also had manufactured his story yeah. to try to divert stuff where he said D and Cinnamon had paid $400 for a uh, fire meant to hurt Myra. And that was really weird because you followed D and Cinnamon. We mentioned that yeah. last episode. All the way to the precinct. And they didn't And they go didn't go in. They yeah. didn't go inside. Well, yeah. Whatever that... What, was, was yeah, about. was there any truth in either of these concocted narratives? No, no. The true story was so. as you know is impossible to discover. Back then, <laughs> my investigation right mm. just well literally drove me crazy. Yes, and I mean today, looking back at it, it just researching it, it just makes me so angry and I frustrated. Know. You that, know what? That there's so much corruption and nobody really did anything about in it. In fact, in general, uh our final months on the hill were annoying and frustrating, uh, sort of the kind of petering out of it all. And everything is still annoying and frustrating as right. you dredge all this up, right? right, right. Uh, so last episode, we told you about, uh, you know, at the end of that chaotic day after uh, I, I found Nick, we finally came together and I found you crying inside the teepee. Um, and then that same evening we took down the cover and the drawings and we just left the poles and we gave away our belongings and we left the hill for we, what we thought would be forever, right? Um, so we slowly began a new life. For instance, we bought a brand new car, first, our first time in our lives. First new car, right. <laughs> we, all we had were vans before that for yeah. my man with van business. Yeah. Said what, I, half a dozen of them probably, different yeah. beat up vans. And I went to Dallas, I remember, to buy that car. Yeah, you know. So my family lived down there in Texas. Uh, so I went there in large part to connect with the quote unquote normal me, <laughs> the part of my life, um, the whole of my life, and try to put in context what had happened at the Hill. And um, I also reconnected with the Undermain Theater. I had been down there right before uh, we went to the Hill and worked with them down there after we had done Trash the City and Death. They had also done a Fassbender piece, and so we had connected back then. And uh, I told Kat, the... Um, Artistic uh, director. Right, and the rest of the ensemble, that I wanted to try to get become normal again after this experience. And they said, well, first thing, you better do something with your hairstyle. <laughs> if I you want to appear normal. <laughs> I still had that crazy haircut, bald. and Yeah, I, 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 I think it was like an anti-mohawk. You shaved down the center and left everything on the sides long. Yeah, before that, it had been, what the, what they used well, anyway. Rat tail? No, it wasn't a rat, something Whatever. like that. Any right. case, yeah. Some kind of stupid <laughs> they, they said, start with your hair. Right. <laughs> 
Um, and then we started to fix up our apartment and we went away on weekends and we tried to shake this sense of doom that it was too late and we were going to die. Um, but the hill continued as it always had. Um, and we would periodically drive by it and the poles were still there like this skeleton, you know. And then finally we were bothered by a sense of having given up and having run away and we felt we needed to do something. So we decided to create a memorial teepee for Mr. Lee, uh, the owner of a canvas warehouse uh, who had once sold us um, waterproofing compound for the original teepee. He took an interest in our work and uh, when we asked him about the price of canvas, he decided to donate it. So. I made another teepee uh, out of regular rolls of vinyl-covered canvas, which turned out to be not a good material, and we'll tell you why. Well, it's a good material, but not in this case. Not in this case. Not for our purposes. Not for the hill. No, not for the hill. <laughs> we'll tell you later in a minute why. Our friend Valerie came up with a perfect design for yeah. the cover. Um, it was based on your vision that you had about uh, the eagle and the turtle that we told you about last episode. And it also had uh, the sun and the moon in it, you know, Tortuga del Sol, Tortuga del Luna, and the symbol of Eagle's Point, which is that right. circle with a plus sign inside it. Yeah, and, and it was a big undertaking really to great. paint it, you yeah. know, to paint this huge canvas uh, cover for the teepee. And we did it down at Coney Island, USA's uh, basement. Yeah. Um, I mean, we had this long-standing relationship with Dick, the artistic director, and Valerie. She was the uh, designer down at Coney Island. Dick Sagan and Valerie Haller. Right. And, uh, you know, they were both good friends. And uh, Valerie's... Uh, New cover design turned out beautiful. Oh, and it was yeah. brilliant. Yeah. It is brilliant. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's gone now. No, I have a rug. Yeah. It but it's not a teepee cover. No, it's not a teepee <laughs> Anyway. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll tell you in a minute. <laughs> right. The original teepee, you know. So we had had the original teepee. It was dedicated to... Uh, Wounded knee victims. And um, disenfranchised today. Mm -hmm. But this new cover was now a memorial solely for Mr. Lee. Yes. And, uh, or probably more precisely to a monument to, both to our personal grief on it. And, yeah, uh, yeah. So meanwhile, Art Forum had come out with an article. And this was really weird because for somebody in the business of looking closely, this critic got virtually everything wrong. You know, I don't know what the hell he was looking at in 91. Well, he came there December 91 when we were on our trip, so. Right, been right, right. So we weren't even there. We weren't right. even there, no. But uh, to summarize, to summarize, he described the teepee as the, the, the homeless as the homeless having thrown it up organically, you know. <laughs> I guess he didn't see 17 25-foot-long trees and, and 78 U.S. government mailbags sewn together. It, it was just really weird. Um, and it, it was super irritating by the time this, this uh, article came out, right? Because... Art, writ large, was just so much bullshit to us at right, this point. Right, right after everything, right? Right. And, and on that art, writ, writ large, I remember uh, John, the owner of the store, 
yeah. who, who donated mm. uh, the canvas for us for the new TP cover. He wanted to donate unlimited canvas because he had a great idea. He envisioned something he called the homeless nation, and he would donate canvas, and we'd build all these little teepees that we would put on um, street corners. And no, yeah, public spaces in New York, and call each one would have a homeless nation on it. Which we thought, well, it sounded interesting, but interesting to somebody other than us now. For somebody, yeah, it would have been interesting back when we originally did it. Maybe but now, after this experience on the hill, we we were done with yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So. But John, uh, the owner of that store, is probably the only one who, to this day, or I'm not sure what happened to him. We couldn't really find him, right? No, yeah. couldn't find the store. Uh, who had a decent picture of this new cover. Um, part of us was just so removed from everything that we were doing that we didn't even bother documenting anything. And I remember feeling like if I took pictures, um, that it would feel like, I don't know, disrespectful to Mr. Lee, um, you know, that it would then be art and, it wouldn't be a memorial. It, it, it was irrational. I don't know why. No, well, but to I mean, this day, all we have is a Polaroid. One Polaroid I took. Right. That's it. And, you know, I mean, it's funny that we didn't have the same qualms when we were taking pictures of the Wounded Knee Memorial. And, I mean, this sort of puts that in highlight, right? Because now we're feeling this thing, and we never felt it back then. Because it was so personal to us. And now it's personal to us, a real memorial, I guess. And the other one seems almost cast as something different now in our minds. Especially, yeah, in a lot of ways. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't but know. But I mean, this, you know, this is not a great, <laughs> it's, it's, it's certainly not equivalent. But any artist who makes, like, the Vietnam memorial or something, uh, true, it's, true. it's no. no less meaningful and important to them, uh, even though it is a work of art. And it's, right? yeah, and it's not, they might not even know anyone personally who would. Yeah, you know, it's right. exactly. It, it, it was irrational, but, but yeah. I don't know. I, we, I, I, we just didn't want anything to do with art anymore. <laughs> well, we point, had, um, we had done everything. Yeah, well, right. At this point, we had done everything uh, that we proposed, quote unquote, right? Um, uh, artistically proposed, like uh, a play inside the teepee, exhibited various galleries, uh, landscaping with a garden, a short film. Um, we never did do the production of uh, Prisoner of Love, but we did do a reading from the book uh, in, in conjunction with an art exhibit. Right. So, yeah. But we, you know, all these proposed and accomplished uh, theater and social actions uh, by this time felt sort of like in our mind as trivial pursuits, really. It, uh, almost meaningless, we'd placed inside the whole context of having lived up there and our life with our friends and neighbors. And then Mr. Lee. Yeah. And yet I did go into a correspondence with um, uh, Dick Hebditch. Yeah. Um, and the editor of Art Forum, right, where he put it in there. Because at this point, now that we weren't up there, no longer living up there, I was going up there daily almost, but not living there anymore. Uh, we wanted to get the record of our time there. Um, straight. Yeah, get it straight. <laughs> honest. Right. Be honest about it. Right, and have our pseudo-identities as artists come out. Transparency. And, yeah. yeah, and be as transparent as possible about what we've done there, everything that led up to this memorial of Mr. Lee, mm -hmm. which we wa now wanted it 
to be, right? But mostly I think we were also trying to understand what happened by telling the story to Dick, this objective observer. Yeah, right. see what he had to say about yeah, it. Yeah, right? and, and he seemed like a good one, right? So Dick Hebdige is still a respected media theorist and sociologist and a professor of art and media studies at UC Santa Barbara. His work is associated with the study of subcultures and their resistance to mainstream society. Right. So Apt kind of critic, ideally, right? he was perfect to examine and document us and if look at what we were doing. If he would have looked, right. which he, you know, I, I don't want to make fun well, of him no, now. Uh, he, no, no, he, no, wait, he was can, embarrassed. We, can we say we were trying to make anonymous and what he saw was exactly what we wanted True. people True, in to some see? ways he was the best. Well, validation of what we were trying to do. Yes. Which was this uh, obscured kind of whatever. The fact that what he saw this? naive art in this right. <laughs> was, was kind of yeah, great. You know, and I remember you know? our correspondence as being friendly. He expressed yes. uh, both his embarrassment and amazement that artists had erected this teepee. Yeah. And why we, the why behind it, right? And uh, his last letter to me had a $50 check in it. <laughs> And uh, poor Dick. <laughs> ostensibly, it was to cover the the postage on some documentation we had sent him, yeah. you know, a couple of dollars in postage or whatever. But uh, probably sent out of a, a kind of uh, embarrassment or whatever. He was a good guy. For He's not, a good guy. I'm for, sure I haven't talked to him. For, but. <laughs> <laughs> for not having done the research he should have done before the article. Yeah. But the check was made out to Nick Manhattan. So <laughs> yeah, no, no account under Mc, Nick Manhattan. Right. <laughs> so we still have the check. <laughs> Uncashed. Right. <laughs> yeah, listen, I'm not going to be the first to throw stones at Dick Hebdige, believe me. Um, so, what? No, nothing. <laughs> Who's throwing stones no, at him? No, I, I just Who's feel, throwing stones? I feel a little bad right now. I, I, no. Because, you know, partially it's the anger about everything. It, Especially it, back then. It, it goes was. towards that saying, which is, you know, one of the four agreements. It's never personal. It's never about you. It's about the person being angry at you, not about you. You know, that's how I feel about that right, right now, about everything. Um, all right, so on, on uh, Sunday, January 24th, 1993, so about three months after we erected that memorial teepee to Mr. Lee, I started writing again. So only three months after? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. yes. Um, so it, it, it's best to just read straight from the journal just to give you a sense of those final days. Um, what it mostly highlights is what's been the biggest theme all along, which is my love for my neighbors. Yeah. It, it still warms my heart when I read it today, right? So I said, haven't spent any time in the hill in months. In fact, the teepee isn't even done inside yet. Nick tries to go on a regular basis, but I just can't bring myself. Uh, there's another onslaught uh, by the press a few weeks ago because of another rumor that it was all coming down. But we don't take these things seriously anymore. Too little, too late. Lots more fires and, and, and. Too much to catch up on and nothing. I wrote. And then I said, but the reason I wanted to write once more is that I went up there again Saturday and realized how much I missed the place. Because the fact is that many of these people are my friends who we shared so much with. And I suddenly remembered how and why I used to try to write so much, how good I felt, and how I wanted to capture and remember how funny and heartwarming these friends are. 
Sammy greeted me warmly and talked to me for about a half an hour. We reminisced. He showed me a picture of his baby, Samantha. I asked about Lisa, and he told me she was staying in La Ponderosa right now. Are they back together? He shrugged. Then Juan came over, and Sammy says, Hey, Juan, go and see your mother. Maybe she'll give you $5 for crack. <laughs> and Juan says, I already did today. <laughs> And I'm saying, nothing's changed. <laughs> we talked about teepees, uh, then and now, and, and how the compound had changed hut-wise. They've been cleaning a lot. There was tons of garbage by the front wall again. Sammy claims still that the giant garbage pile is going to be next. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we reminisced about Ali, whose hut burned down and created that trash dump. And then Mo came around and hugged me and talked about his favorite subject, how Nick is worthless <laughs> as a worker and only supervises and wouldn't ever get anything done without me. Naturally, I agreed. And we laughed and pointed at an unwitting Nick who was standing out of earshot. Then Mo left for a few minutes and came back uh, with that blue plate that I had talked about, a uh, blue collector's Christmas plate from 1971 that he wanted me to have. I, men yeah, I mentioned it at a few episodes ago. You sure? I said, yeah, it would only get busted around here, but only if you promise to come back soon. Then Louis came over, completely drunk. He literally ran up and hugged me. Sammy bragged about how Louis had uh, built new huts and the wall out front, which we had dubbed the Great Wall of Chinatown when we drove by. Spencer had it built. Sammy uh, said that Louis was a great carpenter, and he is, he was. Uh, we were standing around the fire going on in the center of the hill in a barrel, and Louis talked about how his cats shiver and shake because of all of the firecrackers going off. This was around Chinese New Year. And we remembered and laughed about how Billy Toyota was so scared of those firecrackers, the tough guy. Um, and then, uh, meanwhile, uh, Nick was talking to the little demon girl, Kia, half of the fake camcorder box-making team. And then suddenly, Louis said he wanted to talk to me privately. <laughs> and Sammy and I both laughed. Uh-oh. <laughs> he asked me if I had grown up on a farm. I said, sort of. Why? Did I have chickens? Yeah, for a short while, when I was very young. Well, do the eggs come out of, you know, sorry, hope you don't mind my language, the anus, you know, the asshole, sorry, or the other, you know, the penis? Gee, Louie, I'm not sure. By the time I was old enough to wonder, we didn't have chickens anymore. Why? Well, Nick said they came out of the penis. <laughs> he said the penis, really? <laughs> yeah, and I say the asshole. You know, that's why they wash the eggs and why some people won't eat eggs. Like, they won't drink milk because cows roll in the mud. <laughs> Louis, I told you, don't ever believe anything Nick tells you. <laughs> right, I told him they came out of a penis. Not a, <laughs> come on. You probably messing with him. Oh. <laughs> I wrote this, you know, yeah, right. so it was came to... Right. Sammy talked about how the electric got overloaded and the wire burned out again recently and how they're still hooked up to the light pole. He also told about how he saw a raw-assed rat the other day and that it eats side-by-side side with the cats. 
Nick had run into Rad a few days before this. He was staying with Tony in his room. Uh, Sue was with somebody else by then. Rad was limping pretty badly because his leg never healed right from when he mm. fell trying to steal that security camera. Then 10 days later on uh, February 3rd, I wrote, put up some lining, not the portraits, just plain canvas, and added rugs. Juan keeps bringing us stuff, part of a chain link fence. Hey, Nick, look what I got for you. Good for the teepee, huh? <laughs> North Woodsman Tony stopped by. He was living with Red on 110th Street and uh, was looking for a one-bedroom, but he looked terrible, just like Eddie and Hunka before they died. I wasn't even sure if it was Tony at first. Everybody was sick and dying. Again, not to go off on too long a tangent, but addiction is a disease. It's a horrible disease. And there's something evil about a society that tries to criminalize, criminalize for the poor only, mind you, and declares war on something that it fundamentally supports on so many levels, both legal and illegal drugs, right? Yeah. Okay. But I also just want to quickly tell you about Hanka, uh, even though uh, that was from back in 91, but Hanka epitomizes everybody to me. He, he said he was one of the first people um, on the hill, and um, that he went away to jail, and that he had gotten out recently, and that he was married and with two kids. Yes, he told me all of this inside the teepee, where so many people just poured their heart and soul out to me, you know? Um, and uh, so he was married with two kids that adored him. He was HIV positive, and, but he wasn't afraid to die, he said, because he believed in God, but that he was sad for his family. He had told his oldest girl that he was dying, and when she asked why, he told her because he was a bad man. And everybody gets what they deserve. He said he was liked once, hardworking and honest, and that he hates liars, and that he himself is now a liar. It came pouring out of him like this long, rehearsed monologue. Um, and when he was done, he said, thanks for listening to my bullshit, see you. And then he left. And it was so heartbreaking to me, you know, the, the self-loathing. And that really went for everybody on the Hill. It was heartbreaking. Yeah. Right. So um, it was in February 3rd. When I wrote that, right? No. No, no, that's when you came back and you put up the... Um, uh, started fixing up the teepee again. Yes, inside. Three months. So this was like uh, three months after we had erected the uh, the memorial. Yes. Mr. Lee. And uh, and just two days later. After I put down the lining and the rugs and all of that. Uh, right, right. The teepee burned down. It burned down. <laughs> right. When we got there, there was nothing left except for the pole. Literally nothing, though. No shreds, nothing. And we talked to Louis, who said... He had to leave during the fire that it got so intense that he said one minute the teepee was there and the next minute, poof, it was gone like magic. It disappeared. Yeah. Uh, it must have been the heat that the got, vinyl that got caught inside the vinyl covered fabric with no place to escape. So it radiated this intense heat. Yeah. And so it got to a certain temperature where it just sort of exploded. You disintegrated. Know, disintegrated. Yeah. Right. 
Um, and Juan told us that Shaft started the fire because he and Sammy smoked seven bundles and had to cover it up because of Spencer. And then I ran into Sammy who said, oh, what a shame. Somebody must have started the fire from the road trying to get revenge. Who knows, right? Who cares at this point? So the hill with its charred upright teepee poles now at the center stayed up for another half year or so. <laughs> Just like that. We didn't go back. No, that, that was it. We, right. we left then. That, uh, that but we saw in the news and in articles that the hill was being raised and the teepee poles were being crushed. And we have even a photo of a bulldozer sitting next to the August 17th, poles. 1993. Yeah. There's right. all these pictures and news articles. You right. know, that the hill was famous, infamous by that point. Right. Everybody had pictures, including the, uh, I think we saw it on the 6 o'clock news even that right. night. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. Um, so now we want to tell you what happened to the people, as far as we know, starting with some of the peripheral sort of outside people who documented the story. Um, Margaret Morton, who remained a dear friend, uh, she was a tenured professor at Cooper Union, and she kept publishing and exhibiting her photographs of New York City's homeless population and lecturing and participating in panels on homelessness until she died in June 2020. Many of the photos in my books um, are hers. Yeah, she was a dear friend. And um, as well as Andreas Sturzing's photographs. Uh, his, in fact, are not only inside my book, they're the outside back and front cover. Yeah, we met Andreas um, in 1987. Uh, he was a photographer sent and working for Der Spiegel, who were doing an article on uh, Fassbender's Trash the City and Death. On our production. Yeah, we talked about that in episode uh, four, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so he's currently, currently <laughs> a senior. He's currently a senior lecturer at Falmouth University in Cornwall, England, and remains a good friend. In fact, right. we have plans to see him shortly. Yeah. And then there's Jim Lardner, who spent six months researching and writing that New Yorker article on the Hill. Um, he founded inequality.org and was a senior, is a senior fellow at Demos. He's written a number of books, including NYPD, A City and Its Police. He, too, was a former cop. And he continues to write for various publications, including The New Yorker. Yeah, and Dan Hayes, uh, who wrote five articles for the Daily News, trying to get through that blue wall there uh, on the, the silence of the cops, right, mm -hmm. uh, after me Mr. Lee's murder. He's retired now and uh, living in East Hampton. Um, our friends John and Annie, who were married in South Dakota and who met Leola Onefeather first, have since divorced. Uh, John is still a filmmaker living in New York, and Annie doesn't act much anymore, but uh, she's a photographer and writer living mostly in Marseille, France, and we're still friends with both of them. In fact, recently we just reminisced about the hill with each of them just prior to doing this podcast, right? right? And uh, as far as the people on the hill, Indian Jim uh, died sometime in the summer of 91, so pretty early on. Uh, there were a lot of versions of the story. Uh, Louis said he got his settlement from an uh, accident he had a few years earlier, $30,000. <laughs> he left without saying goodbye or, or giving Louis 
any of the money like he had promised he would. Right, that's what they had agreed on. And Louis was really sad about it because they had known each other for so long and it didn't seem to mean a thing to Jim, Louis thought. Um, And then, of course, after that, he had nobody to hang with. Uh, The word was that Jim wanted to return to his family in Florida, but that they didn't want anything to do with him. So he went upstate to Monticello. He had about $3,000 on him when he died there of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And I told the story one time um, in a monologue that I was doing in the play that we did on the hill, um, and everybody started laughing. And it really caught me off guard and momentarily really saddened me, but I guess there's something absurd about an alcoholic waiting for years for a settlement and then dying of a heart attack when he gets it. Ha <laughs> ha, right? Yeah, I guess, yeah. But... Um, you know, uh, Jim's running partner, Louis, or we, you know, we know his full name, Louis Watson. Yeah, the only he, one whose full name we know. Yeah, because he was sort of the professional homeless. He was a subject of uh, so many news articles and documentaries and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, he was there when the hill was raised on o- August seventeenth, nineteen ninety-three. Yeah. So. Um, in fact, there's pictures of him in the news. <laughs> yeah, with his cat. Happily, he managed to rescue his cat. Thomas, a white cat. There's a picture of him yeah. with his cat, right, from the rubble. And um, he later showed up periodically in news articles and a documentary, uh, the one we saw, mm-hmm. um, until he was found drowned in the East River um, at the banks of the East River underneath the Manhattan Bridge. Mm-hmm. There was a homeless encampments were down in there. So he probably, after the hill was raised, he probably went down there and was living. Um, you know, th- that section of the East River where the homeless encampments was, it has like a 12-foot concrete embankment. Yeah. So if he would have fell in, whether he was drunk or sober or somebody pushed him or whatever, he wouldn't have been able to get up. So he would have drowned right yeah. there in the spot where they found him, I guess. Right. right. Uh, so Ace was HIV positive. So we just assumed he eventually died of AIDS. But somebody recently responding to this podcast reached out and told us something weird. I don't know. Um, He said that at the time he had an addicted girlfriend and he'd sometimes go on rescue missions to the hill to go get her, which is how he got to know Ace. And according to him, Ace was shot in the back of the head one day in the East Village. Yeah, but this same guy also told us that Larry, yeah. the, uh, the somewhat violent guy that was pimping... Uh, also it, nice, though. Sometimes. Complicated guy. Yeah, who, who pimped out Elaine, was really an undercover cop, which is total bullshit because him I, and Elaine had a relationship, and it's just totally absurd. So it makes this story about that guy's story about ace seem uh unbelievable less believable less believable and uh, although it'd be no surprise if ace did die violently he was in a lot of fights up at the hill absolutely and his his whole life sorry go ahead Yeah. yeah yeah his whole life was one of violence you know um so eddie uh one of the four brothers that we called the james gang uh, or the old washerwoman, as everybody called him. He died relatively early on as well. In late October of 91, he succumbed to AIDS. I remember seeing him on the hill just a few weeks before. He was just skin and bones and barely recognizable also. And we learned when we went back to the hill after that six-month break that um, 
little small Sioux <laughs> um, and North Woodsman Tony had both also died of AIDS. Right. And interestingly, we ran into Billy Toyota at that point as well, and he was back out of jail on some deal and still doing his hustle. And he was the one, if you might recall from way back early episode, that Rudd was worried about that he was going to die in jail, right? Um, because he was HIV positive. But he looked really thin and pale and was clearly still fighting AIDS. Yeah, so this HIV or, you know, AIDS, the late, late stage of HIV infection, was the number one cause of death among Americans aged 25 to 44. That was in, you know, the early 90s. Yeah. And uh, there was a drug for treating it, HIV back then, but uh, this drug, AZT, was uh, also at that time the most expensive prescription drug in history. Uh, in today's dollars, its one-year price tag was $16,500. Right, so nobody on the Hill was going to be able no. to afford that. So Tito, Red, Ivan, the brothers, Tony Sue were all heroin addicts and uh, HIV positive. Uh, so although we don't really know, we assume as they themselves did, yeah. that they would all eventually die of AIDS. Um, everyone else we had come to know up on the hill, uh, the Geomancer, Ali, Elaine, Juan, Sammy, Chinese Jimmy, Mo, Cano, Spencer, the Tony Panama and Shaft, um, Dip, that bully Tony. <laughs> we don't know anything about how their lives worked out or what happened to them. Right. So one of my last entries in the journal, I wrote, uh, Nick and I never did get the closure we wanted. Real life defies neat endings. Yeah, except, you know, what, what is real life? I mean, it's the life. The blue pill or the red pill, you mean? No. <laughs> well, yeah, that too. But the life you live, your memories, you know, your yeah. reflections on, on that life and the people who shaped it. Uh, so the people on the hill, right? Both the conscious and unconscious reservoir of all the feelings and you know thoughts and memories that push you on for the rest of your life the rest of your journey right 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 um so so i wrote this near the end of the journal magically and as mysteriously as the whole experience of the hill itself unfolded the billboard above the site eventually changed back to what it was on the photo that had blown up on Nick's feet on Canal Street so long ago. A Winston ad. Only this time with Winston's new logo. An eagle and a turtle. And except for the fact that we have proof of this, it sounds like we made it up. Right, right. Because like we a had, film script or right, something. We had never seen the Winston ad up there. All we saw it was in this photograph that blew up on our feet. Yes. When, we, when it was... The hill there, there was one on real estate or something. Or, but we had never seen it. But now here it was back again, as if there was a, as if there was no time, or time was coming in. Yes, the, and it and and it had an eagle and a turtle in it. Right. We should have taken pictures of it later when it was up there. You know, uh, we we do have. You, you can research Winston and and see that that they have a, a an ad campaign with an eagle and a turtle, and you know it it, it it's. It's yes, it is magic, right? And um, I hooked a rag rug in the shape 
of a teepee and with the uh, the design of the second co uh, cover that memorial to Mr. Lee using the clothes that we wore on the hill cut in the strips and that rag rug still hangs in our apartment and it I was inspired by Nick's grandmother who hooked hundreds of them in her lifetime and it was kind of my chosen form of therapy and I hooked these words in, in, in the semicircle part of it uh, which is the dedication that Nick came up with. Right. Um, yeah, it was more... Uh, in I don't know an inv invocation because um, I was trying to find some hope or I saw some hope in all the hopelessness. I, I I mean I was thinking of Mr. Lee, who remains eternally, you know, present in my mind. He was he was present in my mind then and still now. Um, yeah, streets blossom where you roam, until timeless spring. Now golden wings unfold. Right. That was a. Uh, thing that uh, it means something now it meant a lot more back then it's just like how we look at it every day on our yeah. wall you know? yeah it's just you know people stay with you your whole life yeah the people mm -hmm. you love right so as we said the hill was raised in august of 93 and that following thanksgiving was the three-year anniversary of when we erected the teepee and that day we climbed over this cyclone fence that they had put around the hill area, um, the now lifeless plowed over hill area. <laughs> and we dug a hole uh, at the site of Mr. Lee's hut and we planted a small white pine tree right near the tree whose roots we found when we were digging inside the teepee. Yeah. Yeah, this was the tree, the roots we found was a tree that they said had been hit by lightning. Yeah. And that's when it came down. But before that, they had put up decorations, Christmas tree decorations, uh, um, you know, at Christmas. Um, but I again, the evergreen, the evergreens, they symbolize immortality because they keep their leaves all winter, right? But um, to the Iroquois people, the white pine is a symbol of the great peace uh, that unified their separate nations into one league. And, I mean, we have a picture of that white pine, including the blank billboard in preparation of the new West Winston ad yeah. that would later have the turtle and um, eagle on it. Um, but that white pine didn't last long. It was that summer, in the uh, summer of 94, the white pine we planted also died. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, uh, th th just all these synchronicities, it, it does remind me, though, of also uh, Black Elk. You know, th th there is no center, center any longer, and the sacred tree is dead. Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. right. still uh, can't help but think of that. So in ending this episode and this podcast, there's just one more story we want to relate to you, speaking of synchronicities and full circles. Um, and it happened recently. Uh, for us, the timing of it all uh, bears paying attention to. They say the universe sends you clues and that there's providence at work in your life if you just know how to listen. So right, and it, it's, again, difficult to for us to ignore the synchronicity in, of everything in this. I mean, just mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, um, our close friend and Thieves Theater co-founder, Tanush Kohli, died suddenly of a heart attack. Um, Gabriel, he and I, 
had met in a production of The Balcony at the university where our mutual friend, uh, Chris Harris, was a professor at the time. He was the uh, director. Mm -hmm. And we all worked together on Thieves Theater inaugural production of Janae's Death Watch at uh, Illinois State Penitentiary. Yep. Uh, Chris directed that too. And, uh, but we had reconnected with Tanoush um, seven years ago and saw him on a regular basis since then. So in the summer of 2016, we went to his son's wedding in Toronto, the city where we spent so mm. much time together doing theater uh, back in the 80s. And, um, and then later that year in 2016, we actually visited him in India. Uh, Toronto and Lucknow, India were the two cities where he split much of his time. And uh, we last saw him just this past December in Toronto to see his first grandchild. So we were deeply, yeah. deeply grateful for yeah. that, at least. Yeah, strangely, uh, incredibly, I don't know what the right adverb is for the synchronicity or whatever, but just this past April, we were uh, tearing down the set of our um, annual Coney Island Ritual Cabaret that we do each year. And um, the set, the material was mylar. Yeah, which is that mirrored. Right. Which was the main element in this set at Coney Island Ritual Cabaret, but also was Tanusha's design of um, the, the balcony. balcony. He was the designer of the balcony. And he had put mylar as the center kind of thing of, you know. Yeah. And uh, I remember back then, remember, every, well, we won't go into it, but Tanusha's design was just so brilliant. And... Everybody thought it was really expensive, and then he was saying, Mylar doesn't cost that much. Well, it cost a little bit, but not that much. We were saving the Mylar, though. Yes, right? yes. And and then when we were saving this Mylar from the Coney Island Rich Cabaret... Which our designer came up with independently, by the way. Right. <laughs> we said, well, this is the one Tanoush used. Why right. don't we do another production of the balcony? So instead of doing the Ritual Cabaret each year, we talked to Adam Realman, the... Um, artistic director at Coney Island, we said, next year we want to do a theater production. And so we set up doing the balcony <laughs> in December of 2024. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and through that, we contacted Chris Harris again, who we hadn't contacted in 40-some years. It's, we had, right. And, we, you know, we wanted to get some uh, production photos from him from the original yeah. balcony because he had taken all the photos. And... Uh, we contacted him and s telling him we were going to do another production. But at the same time, um, now, you know, just a couple weeks ago, we contacted him again because we told him that Tanusha died. died. Right. Yeah. And then, then he, he wrote back to us. He wrote something remarkable back for me, you know, speaking of like paying attention to the universe. Right. Uh, he, he said, Oh, fuck, shit and damnation. I have now lost, quote-unquote, another colleague and friend. This has been a hard couple of years where my mortality and that of those around me is brought startlingly home. I have, over the last few years, increasingly found consolation and reassurance in the philosophy of the, quote, casual drift of things a phrase I filched from the English professor John Gray. In his book, Straw Dogs, he wrote this paragraph that spoke volumes to me and still does. Quote, we are not authors of our lives. We are not even 
part authors of the events that mark us most deeply. Nearly everything that is most important in our lives is unchosen. The time and place we are born, our parents, the first language we speak, these are chance, not choice. It is the casual drift of things that shapes our most fateful relationships. The life of each of us is a chapter of accidents. That's the end of John Gray's quote, and then Chris continues. It reminds me to be prepared for the randomness of life. You do what you can with the circumstances that present themselves. It also resonates in harmony with the words of Hamlet when he returns to court in Act four, 5. Not a wit, we defy augury. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Yeah, please. The readiness is all. And that's the end of Yeah, and the, the Hamlet words come just before he's about to die, right? Yes, in the last act, yeah. Right. Hamlet finally stops trying to control things yeah. and decides that, yes, you know, to accept the notion of fate. And again, the idea being to be prepared for the randomness of life, the casual drift of things, or, or providence, depending on what you believe. Um, so anyway, that was, that was Chris's email uh, that resonated with me because of the timing of it all, you know? And, and not just as it relates to the loss of Tanush, but also in trying to make sense of our work on the hill, the loss of Mr. Lee, um, the, the reason, the very reason for this podcast to try yeah. and make sense of it all. And here come Chris's words, right? right? But I mean... What does it all mean? I, but randomness, no, it, I can't accept that. There are too many clues, signs that foreshadow your fate, right? Uh, this is for yes. me where free will comes in, if there's free will. You can either ignore or follow these metaphysical messages that are sent to you and try to act in concert with them yes. in some way. Like that print that magically blew up on my feet. Yes. I have to keep it the whole time we're on the hill and relate to it. Which nobody would believe. It sounds made up. Right. A print blew up, for those of you who yeah, don't remember, but I mean, but how from do you, five, six years earlier. But, yeah, you know? but you can't really... You act in concert with it. I don't mean that. You, you just sort of enter into the mystery of it all and sort of dance with your destiny. So you keep this print and you... You keep relating to it and dancing with it, yeah. right? And um, and what does it mean doing this Thieves Theater podcast now and Tanush dying as we complete the last couple episodes? Yes, we're called right. International Cultural Lab now. <laughs> we yeah. haven't been Thieves Theater since right. 2007. <laughs> how, the, how does this loss of Tanush intersect with us examining our grief and loss over Mr. Lee yeah. and, you know, decades earlier. So the synchronicities and offer mysteries that can't be easily unraveled and understood. No, and it's been really hard doing this podcast, diving into it all again. But I'll tell you what's even harder, ending it. <laughs> you know, 30 years later, there's still no grand revelation, no like scales falling off the eyes and awakening to what you did. Much like life itself, the picture is super muddy, and the story in so many ways is anticlimactic. Um, but 
here's the other thing, right? about this author, John Gray, that I found interesting. Because uh, books are really hard to end, too, especially books that are delve heavily into the philosophies of the world, right, and are so complicated. And this is how John Gray decided to end his book. Other animals do not need a purpose in life. The human animal cannot do without one. Can we not think of the aim of life as being simply to see, question mark? Right. Yeah, it reminds, reminds me of what our answer w used to be when we first got to the hill. And people asked us, uh, what are you trying to do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we'd answer, I don't know, be here, live here, I interact with people, see what happens, <laughs> see what happens, right? Right. Yeah. Maybe that's, I mean, st still enough in this podcast yeah. is just... Maybe that's all that yeah. it was, and maybe that's perfect, right? But yeah, the synchronicities, the mysteries do reconnect you to a sense of awe, right? To a sense of being guided and, and a sense of uh, that someday, somewhere on some plane or another, the big picture is all going to become revealed to you, right? Right. And as far as Mr. Lee specifically, um, during the writing of this last episode, which we've <laughs> been at for quite a while now, we uh, rewatched uh, Dances with Wolves. Um, and it, it was just as beautiful now as we had remembered it uh, back then. It had premiered. Speaking of synchronicity. Right. <laughs> it had premiered on the day we erected a teepee, Thanksgiving in 1990. Yes. Right. Um, and the film's ending seems fitting here because it wraps this up too. And it's, um, it echoes the geomancer's uh, words after the death of Mr. Lee. Mm -hmm. We saw him come out uh, on the roof of his hut and he shouted the first words that anyone had ever heard him speak. Mm -hmm. He said, he was my friend. We were soldiers together. He was my brother. Yes, and uh, as Kevin Costner's character is riding away uh, for the last time from the Lakota village and the family and the people that he now belonged to, his friend, wind in his hair, is shouting from the top of a nearby cliff, um, bidding farewell. And he says, uh, this is all in Lakota, you know. Shung Manitu Tanka Opwachi. Shung Manitu Tanka Opwachi. Dances with wolves, dances with wolves. I am wind in his hair. Do you see that I am your friend? Do you see that you will always be my friend? Yeah. Tortuga da luna, tortuga da sol. The argument continues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Um, again, feel free to write us uh, about this or any... Uh, topic or episode at podcast at thievestheater.org we'd love to hear from you uh, we'll come back on occasion so subscribe and hit that bell so that you'll know uh, when we do yeah, check out our website at thievestheater.org and follow us on Instagram Facebook and Twitter at TP on the Hill that's T-I-P-I thank you so much for your time listening to this podcast thank you